Chapter 29 I received a call from Tulane University, uh, the medical school of the Tulane University, and it was from the Department of Psychiatry and Urology, offering me an opportunity to interview for a position on the faculty of that department, which was directed by Dr. Bob Heath, MD, specifically in the unit of social psychiatry. I went for that interview totally incredulous that I had been, that this unsolicited opportunity, and I was hired as an MSW counselor in a brand new drug program for narcotic addicts, and I was hired as an assistant professor in the clinical staff of the Department of Psychiatry and Neurology. And that was with a considerable increase in salary from what I had been earning at the hospital uh, for about six months. That boost to my morale erased the two setbacks which I had received just six months before when I first began my search for a job with no assurance that anyone would hire me. And sure enough, nobody was hiring me. What had paved the way for that Tulane Medical School to seek me out resulted from a high recommendation of the psychiatrist who headed the adolescent unit at the hospital where I worked. That director also worked on the program that I was joining. He opened innumerable doors for me with that recommendation because it introduced me into the drug field, a field that I would stay in for a number of years. One more time, I could not believe my unbelieving ears, this time that I received a promotion from an MSW on a hospital ward to a clinical faculty member in one of the prestigious medical schools in the nation. The program hiring me went by the title of the work that it did. It was the unit of social psychiatry under the Department of Psychiatry and Urology. The unit head was a behaviorist psychiatrist in a medical school whose department of psychiatry was 99% of the psychiatry practiced in that was the psychological theory of psychoanalysis. He was the only behaviorist. This professional MD had taken himself to Philadelphia to do an internship in psychiatry, but to do it with the famous behaviorist psychi psychiatrist, Dr. Joseph Wolpe. He was the man who developed from scratch the psychological intervention which is known as systematic desensitization. It's an intervention in psychology which eliminates phobic conditions, providing the practitioner has learned the steps taught by Dr. Joseph Wolpe. As head of the unit of social psychiatry, this behaviorist was perforced the director of the program which I was joining, which was known as the NARA program. I want to tell you a bit about the NARA program because of how important it was in my life. NARA was the acronym for Narcotic Addict Rehabilitation Act. That was the federal act which was funding all NARA programs across the nation. The Tulane NARA became the second one to be funded. The first one was already in operation, and it had been in the city of San Antonio, Texas, 
under the name of the Patrician Movement, a free, standing, private attic program operated by a Catholic priest. The Patrician Movement exists to this day. I don't know who the, 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 the head is, but it's still going. Eventually, the feds would have 147 NARA programs nationwide. The Tulane NARA was the only one housed in a medical school. Ours was loaded with psychiatric input from academicians who were also practitioners of their art and their science. They weren't just teachers. They weren't just professors. They were practitioners. So we had input of the highest caliber. Unbeknownst to me at the time of my hiring, the director of the NARA program there was anxious to have someone under him to be the director of NARA. That would free him to be open to other community programs which could benefit from social psychiatry theory and practice. The, social, the unit of social psychiatry was into putting together programs that benefited the whole community, not just individuals. He was proud of the development that we were engaged in, me and the two other MSWs whom I had joined. He did not have the full time needed for NARA to excel in its continued development. Without any warning, I found myself being appointed director of that NARA program. Great professional excitement permeated our staff, working with MD psychiatrists who were into innovation and into concrete, measurable results. The behavior psychiatrist made sure that we had measurable results. That's not the case with a lot of treatment programs in the field of mental health. They can tell you all the things they do, they can spell out much activity, but they don't tell you what the results of all that activity is very frequently. Our outpatient program consisted in working on the rehabilitation of narcotic addicts of the hardcore variety. And they were men and women who came out of a six-month civil commitment to one of the two hospitals which were operated by the NARA Act. Those men and women whom we took in for an outpatient program had been withdrawn from their addiction and then they had been kept for six months receiving treatment consistent with a new outlook on self, on life, on family, and on self-sufficiency. Instead of being charged with a criminal conviction when they were arrested, they were charged with a civil commitment, a civil conviction. And as such, the participants agreed to receive the paid six-month inpatient treatment and also to sign up for the outpatient paid follow-up program, one of which is what we were providing. Under our direction, they would be monitored with urine collection, for instance, for us to be able to ascertain their abstinence from drugs. If they were found to be, quote, dirty, unquote, three times successively, they could be taken back to the inpatient hospital for another six-month civil commitment, and it would be federal marshals who would take them back at our instruction. The theory that NARA had put together argued that with that sanction pending, addicts would eventually clean up their act, because they knew that as soon as they got dirty, quote-unquote, they'd be sent, for, sent back for another six months. Our outpatient work with them 
with those who were released to us was to provide program <clears throat> which enabled them to reintegrate into their family, into their community, and whatever responsibilities they had with those respective families. We had funds to pay for training programs when indicated. All NERA programs were in uncharted waters for the treatment of the hardcore addicts. The more successful programs going on were run by recovered drug addicts themselves who ran a tough, no-nonsense approach in an inpatient setting in a halfway house where those participants in that halfway house earned the privilege of being treated as adults. They were taught discipline out of their immature behavior to adult responsible behavior. That was the philosophy of those halfway houses run by ex-addicts. Many people washed out of those programs for their toughness. Those who succeeded stood a very good chance of being hired as counselors by other halfway houses run by recovered addicts. The grant from the feds made it incumbent on each NARA program to devise its own program to administer for their respective population. And as I said, we had both men and women in our programs, and they were consisted of 99% minority population. Our participants in New Orleans faced not only the stigma of being a quote-unquote junkie, they also faced the stigma from the prejudice that existed toward their race in the southern city of New Orleans, Louisiana. And that prejudice was quite thick. As I said before, Tulane Nera served both men and women. The males which we received, whom we received rather, for outpatient program, came from the Clinical Research Center, the CRC Hospital, based in Fort Worth, Texas. All males who were civilly committed and charged with a six-month hospitalization for narcotic addiction went either to the hospital in Fort Worth, but if they were from east of the Mississippi River, they went to Kentucky, the CRC Hospital, based in Lexington, Kentucky. All women addicted and civilly committed went to the Lexington Hospital for six months inpatient treatment. I became fast and furious friends with my immediate boss, the behavior psychi psychiatrist, and with his primary technical, uh, technical medical assistant, the psychiatrist, who had put in a good word for me to put me in the spotlight for Tulane Medical School to hire me. I not only had their professional input and encouragement to put together an outpatient program with as many components as I deemed appropriate, they endorsed my proposals for expansion. And before long, our grant was increased at our request so that we could hire four more MSWs plus a paraprofessional who had been very successfully rehabilitated in our own program. Our staff of counselors went from three to seven. Eventually, we had the funds and the clearance to add a, a rental property in a house in a ghetto which was close to where many of our client population came from. That house served as a meeting place for group meetings which we could conduct away from our small offices. 
one-to-one individual conferences continued meeting at our offices in a building which was adjacent to the medical school, and the medical school was right downtown New Orleans. Our program was the first to request an exception to the federal rule of not using addictive medications for treatment purposes. We obtained permission to use methadone for patients whose urine showed three times of being quote-unquote dirty, meaning they were on their way to a heavy re-addiction. The original program regulation was that a member who was re-addicted or on the way to being re-addicted could be immediately returned to the CRC they came from by the United States Marshals. The use of methadone was a more sensible, though imperfect, solution to curb further re-addiction. That was our primary argument. We at the med school did not have to open our own methadone clinic. We could use the six or seven clinics which spread throughout the city of New Orleans. Our success persuaded the feds eventually to allow methadone in all their NARA installations. They saw that it was, though an imperfect solution, it was a better solution than sending people back for another six months. Because if they went back in, they'd have to be reintegrated to their family, reintegrated into their community, etc. Because of the med school's connections, we had access to top-flight research done on the urine samples collected. Research which found publication in professional jury periodicals. The labs which we used for analysis of those samples were independent of the school. And the feds were very pleased with all that the Tulane era was contributing to the field of treatment for narcotic addiction. All of this success, of which I was an integral part, was occurring because I was comfortable being the administrator I needed to be for the success of our NARA program. This went a long way to my perception of how high my station in life was climbing in the civilian world of medicine. If you recall, in previous chapters, I tried to persuade my diocese to offer what they were offering me to someone else to administer the charity's office in the Diocese of El Paso, and all because I didn't feel that it was in my bones to be an administrator. Now, less than a year after I left that position, that title, that opportunity to be an administrator, I was in full swing administration and basking on how great it was to be succeeding in a pond considerably larger than the El Paso Diocese had been for me. The quality of my self-perception, based on concrete, measurable change in what I could contribute to society, was gigantic. My station in life was indeed soaring. Life was about to give me one more transformative move if I were ready for another leap of faith.